questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And if you want to listen to all of tonight's interview and every single interview we have ever done, you know what to do by now. Just click on this subscribe button of our website, subscribe, and get your login immediately. And again, we now have additional options other than PayPal. I know some of you don't like PayPal, so we have Stripe, another option that I think you'll enjoy. It does the same thing, but it's a, a new offering, and it's very reputable. So click on the subscribe button on our website if you don't like PayPal, and this is another option that you can use for payments. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or simply have feedback from me, I always love to hear from you. The Legend of Atlantis is one of the most intriguing mysteries of all time, disproving many well-known Atlantis theories and providing a new hypothesis, the evidence for which continues to build. Tonight's guest shows that what Plato recounts is the memory of a major cataclysm at the end of the last ice age, 13,000 years ago, when a comet devastated the island of Cuba and submerged part of the Bahamian landmass in the Caribbean. Tonight, we will piece together the final days of Atlantis and the wildfires, earthquakes, tsunamis, days of darkness, and advancement of ice sheets that followed the ancient comet's impact and will establish not only that Atlantis did indeed exist, but also that remnants of it survive today, most obviously in Cuba, Atlantis's original central island. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is the author of many books, including Atlantis in the Caribbean and The Comet That Changed the World. He is none other than Andrew Collins, who has been investigating the idea of advanced civilizations in prehistory since 1979. His website is andrewcollins.com, and he joins us directly from Essex, England. Hello, Andrew, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Good day to you, Mel. It's uh, mid-evening here in England, uh, slightly earlier in your own country, uh, but uh, I'm ready for a good discussion on a fascinating subject. Absolutely. Always, always a pleasure to have you on. First of all, Atlantis is one of those topics that always fascinates me. I've had a few people with different theories. Some say that it's in the Pacific. Some say it's in, you know, west of of the the uh, uh, of, of of the United Kingdom. But I always, always felt that Atlantis was somewhere in the middle of the Caribbean. And when your publisher sent your book, I said, "Aha! So here's somebody who." is close to what I'm thinking. So how did you arrive to the conclusion that Atlantis was and is underwater in the Caribbean? Well, it's a, an interesting story because um, a few years ago, uh, my publisher asked me if I would do a book on Atlantis. And um, I said, yes, of course I will. And uh, first, I, I thought that Atlantis was probably in the area of Antarctica, uh, and the reason I say that is that there have been some good books out by the likes of Graham Hancock, Rosenrand Flemath, um, and, you know, various other people that had suggested that there may have been some kind of lost civilization there. Um, so that was the premise of the book. But what I did was I got all of Plato's pages from the two books that he actually refers to Atlantis, which is the Timaeus and the Critias, which were written approximately around 350 BC, and I pasted them all around the walls of my kitchen. And, you know, each one was blown up to um, A3 size, um, which is sort of you know, double US letter, basically. And every day I would, you know, um, consult them. And I would, you know, read them as I was eating and preparing food and whatever, just so I knew absolutely everything that Plato had to say. And what I began to realize is that that there was no way that Atlantis could be in the area of the uh, of the Antarctica because it, he says very specific things about where it is placed. 
I mean, firstly, he talks about it existing beyond something that he refers to as the Atlantic Sea. Now, we would refer to this today as the Atlantic Ocean. Um, however, in the past, the Atlantic Sea was a very specific area. It was the area that was to the west of a landmark which um, ancient mariners would encounter on the African coast before they ventured into the deep sea. And, th and this landmark was Mount Atlas, and it was a large mountain um, often enshrouded with mist, which local legend suggested was the god um, Atlas carrying the, the globe of the world up, upon his back. Um, and so the actual area of sea in front of that became known as the Atlantic Sea. And this stretched as obviously as far as the eye could see towards various islands that were talked about during the age of Plato. And one of these sets of islands were known as the Hesperides. Now, these were three large islands that various um, ancient commentators um, uh, alluded to. And they said that they existed um, in an area of the, of the ocean that was beyond something that was referred to as the, the Sea of Seaweed, um, which was also synonymous with something called um, the Shallow Sea or um, the, the, the Mud Shoals. Um, and there was a, there's a lot of enigmatic statement here, which we'll come back to. But basically what he says is that the Atlantic Island, that's what he calls it, the Atlantic Island. It's only in the second of the books he actually calls it Atlantis. Um, you could be you could use this um, as uh, along with a series of other smaller islands to reach what he refers to as the opposite continent. And he uses this term on at least two, two occasions. And he's clearly referring to the American continent, North America, Central America and, and obviously South America. And this is exactly what the ancient mariners would do to reach the American continent. They would go out into the deep Atlantic following the, the, the winds, the trade winds and the different ocean currents. And these would pull them from the area of the, uh, the, the Canary Islands right the way across to the, 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 the lesser Antilles um, and also obviously the greater Antilles, which are the three main Caribbean islands of Cuba, Hispaniola and Puerto Rico. And, also, obviously, the Bahamas themselves. I mean, you know, the, the, the most southern of those uh, is almost within sight of Cuba. Um, and, of course, they stretch northwards to the area of Bimini, which is obviously adjacent to Fort Lauderdale and, you know, the northern part of, um, of, of Florida. Um, so clear, very clearly, Plato's talking about this area. And we can confirm this even more by identifying this, this sea of seaweed, because quite clearly this is the Sargasso Sea, um, which is a massive area that stretches from the mid-Atlantic virtually up to the edge of northern um, Bahamas. Um, and it's it just covered. It's a, very, it's, it's a very steel sea, and it's covered in this seaweed, and it seems to take forever to cross it. Huge, great fish swim about in it, you know, tuna and things like this. And it's very clear that mariners were aware of this, certainly in, Plato, in Plato's age. Um, but, be, but we can also identify that the mud shoals or the shallow sea, this is almost certainly the very shallow waters around the Bahamas. This is the only real area where you find this. Uh, and of course, these were caused because the great Bahaman landmass which had previously been a, a huge, um, you know, sort of mini continent in its own right, um, sank beneath the waters at the end of the last ice age due to the fact that the waters were rising after the end of the, you know, the, 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 the ice melt waters were coming down from places like, you know, the, the Ohio River uh, and obviously other major rivers of, of North America and, of course, other parts of the world. And the waters were rising up very quickly. Um, and we'll come on to why in a, in a moment. But and they drowned low lying regions of the Bahamas and the Caribbean, leaving really what you have today. I mean, it, it was a process that at some times was very fast and at other times very slow and didn't actually end probably until around two to three thousand B.C., as late as that. 
But that isn't the main cause of any kind of cataclysm or destruction, because we're talking about something much earlier, something which Plato himself seems to have understood and seems to have had knowledge of. And as to where he gets this knowledge, that, that's, that's a bigger challenge, which we'll come on to. And that's the fact that almost certainly around 13,000 years ago, there was a massive comet impact, something that affected the entire world, something that brought a period of darkness, brought mass floods around the world, wildfires that raged not for, for just a few years, but perhaps on and off for several hundred years. Um, the period of darkness caused the temperature to drop dramatically, and this triggered a mini ice age, which the scientists referred to as the Younger Dryas event. And this lasted approximately from 10,800 BC right the way down to about 9,600 BC. And it ended almost as quickly as it came on, possibly even with another catastrophic event, which scientists are only now beginning to try and get to grips with. And of course, it's 9,600 BC that Plato tells us that Atlantis sank. Um, and we, he says it was destroyed in one terrible day and night of earthquakes and floods by the god Zeus. After the Atlantean peoples became too haughty, they became too big for their boats. Um, they started invading other nations. They started going even inside the, the Mediterranean, according to Plato, um, attacking people, you know, the different cultures and, and societies. And Zeus decided he'd had enough and he just struck them, obviously, with one of his firebolts, uh, thunderbolts. And that was the end of that. I mean, that's obviously the myth. I mean, the, the actual yeah, core legend behind it is something let's, that, that we'll, we'll talk let's about. Let's dissect this for a moment because this is interesting. You say that mariners or sailors were aware of this area during Plato's time. Are you saying the Greeks and perhaps other cultures were sailing to this side of the world prior to Columbus? And when we say Zeus, could we assume they were talking about their version of today's God? Um, yeah, not yes and no. Um, Let's 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 break that down for a second. I mean, firstly, yes, there's absolutely powerful evidence to suggest that transoceanic contact was taking place, uh, certainly during Plato's time, which is 350 BC, but arguably much much earlier, a thousand BC, perhaps even 2000 BC, and arguably much earlier. I mean, to start off with, we have all of the incredible you know, Native American peoples um, that exist on the continent anyway. Um, and many of those have legends about their founders having come f by boat, either from the east or from the west, um, and founding their, you know, their, their earliest tribes, their mm -hmm. earliest clans or whatever. So that's that fact. But it seems as though that the main focus of transoceanic contact between the African continent, that the European continent and the American continent at an early age was the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians. Now, the Phoenicians uh, were based in what is today the Lebanon, Syria, uh, Israel, Palestinian territories, you know, the West Bank area um, and the, oh, sorry, the Gaza Strip, not the West Bank. And also um the Carthaginians, who were a sister colony um, in the northwest coast of Africa. Um, now, the Phoenicians had various trading outposts also in Spain, um, and they worked very closely with the indigenous peoples of Spain, who were called the Iberians, because, uh, I mean, Spain used to be called Iberia. Um, and they almost certainly were reaching, and I mean, this is no real... Uh, controversy, I think, just to say that they probably reached the, the Canaries, they almost certainly reached the Azores, which are in the central uh, Atlantic on the mid-Atlantic rift. But beyond that, they reached the Sargasso Sea. I mean, there are references um, to, you know, some of their early mariners, um, you know, crossing the, 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 you know, the, the Sea of Seaweed. And that means that they were certainly that far. Um, so, and that's without any evidence when we start looking at the American continent itself, because all throughout the continent, there are 
incredible pieces of evidence to show that the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians were reaching the eastern shores of the American continent from obviously the area of Newfoundland, you know, to, to New England, um, right the way down to Central America, various countries there, uh, and of course places like Brazil in South America. Um, and we're talking everything from amphora jars to coins um, to various artifacts to, to stone tablets which with inscriptions um, and most importantly vessels. Um, there are at least three vessels uh, off of the, the coasts of, of, um, of either Central or South America which are incredibly controversial because obviously if they do prove that uh, ancient mariners reached the Americas long before Columbus, then there'll be riots in the streets, quite literally, <laughs> in various of these countries. I, I kid you not. No, no, I you know, I mean, I mean, um, in the seventies, I think it was the seventies. The whole story's in the book. Um, there was a, a wreck found off of the coast of, of Brazil in the so-called Bay of Jars. Uh, and the reason why it was called the Bay of Jars is because various fishermen. Or, or divers were diving down and finding these huge amphora jugs and they were selling them on the local market, you know, get, get a few, you know, whatever the currency is over there. I don't know. Please excuse me for not knowing. And some of these came to the attention of the local museum and they studied them and they realized that they'd actually come from Africa. Now, and they examined them fully expecting that the crustacean that were actually on them, um, had actually, uh, come from a Africa themselves. In other words, they'd been in the water off the coast of Africa. Somebody had found them, brought them across to, to Brazil in relatively modern times, and somehow they'd become dumped in the sea. But when they studied them, they found that they were local crustaceans, which meant that they'd been in the, 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 um, in the sea locally for at least 1500 years. And in fact, I mean, almost certainly, you know, from the, the, the style of them, they were at least 2,000 years old, from the very end of the Carthaginian period to the beginning of, of Roman rule in Carthage. And um, the, they called in this worldwide renowned expert for finding wrecks by the name of Robert Marks, uh, and he went to the Spark Mountain Expedition. They found not one but two wrecks in the vicinity, or, you know, the the... the, the the, the site scan stoners and whatever suggested that they were there. Uh, and he applied to the Brazilian government for permission to, um, to investigate them. And they just flatly turned him down. And once it, it, it got out into the news, there, there, there was literally riots in the streets in Brazil. And, um, you know, because the, the discoverer of Brazil was this guy called, was it Cabral, I believe. And, um. Well, why the riots? Because we're rewriting well, because, history? Because, because, because it ter puts everything in turmoil. Right. You know, in other words, everything that was set in stone suddenly isn't. And it's almost like finding out that reality isn't reality and that everything's wobbly. Rewriting history. Um, and, and it, it, but it's more than rewriting history. It's rewriting every, every history book. It's, and every, um, professor, every, a scholar that has ever talked about it will now be considered to be incorrect, wrong, you know, and people will say, well, look, if you're wrong about that, what else are you wrong about? And this is the problem that we've got. I mean, so in other words, it will be suppressed wherever it's found. I, I quote another story from, I think it's um, Venezuela, um, of another similar wreck with almost the same thing happening there. And in North America, of course, archaeologists never accept that any pre-Columbian artifacts were brought over from the old world. They will just not accept it. I mean, they'll accept that they are old. They will accept that they may be earlier than the age of Columbus. But what they won't accept is how they reached the Americas, as far as they're concerned. Well, what they, about they were brought over in colonial times and dropped what about uh, some Native Americans who have, uh, generation to generation, they have collected these Babylonian cuneiform absolutely, tablets? Absolutely. I mean, that's a great story, actually. I mean, basically, um, when uh, there, was a, there was a battle and a, a Native American chief was, um, was caught, leader, and uh, he had his own little pouch. 
and in it was a, a Babylonian um, cuneiform tablet. Yeah. And they said to him, you know, what's this and where did you get it? And he said that he was passed, uh, it was passed on from his father uh, and his father had found it. Um, and um, so they, you know, obviously the, the the people that heard this story just reported on it. I think they probably confiscated it. Um, and of course, once the um, the scholars uh, of the period found out about this, um, they just said, "Oh, uh, you know, it must have been brought across in early right. colonial times and and dropped," which is just ridiculous. I mean, because you know nobody had actually been in that area. And I was in um, where was I in uh, recently? Um, uh, one U.S. state, and I was actually in a museum uh, talking to the curator, and somebody actually brought in a cuneiform tablet that had been found at the side of a river not far from, you know, the, the location of the museum, and they were simply bringing it in to show it to the curator to ask them what they'd found. And, uh, you know, and of course, I recognised it instantly, you know, the curator did, and I actually showed I showed pictures of it to one of the world's um, top authorities on cuneiform inscriptions in the world, uh, a guy by the name of Irving Finkel, uh, Professor Irving Finkel of the British Museum. And he accepted. He said, yes, I, this, this is unquestionably um, 4,000 years old, um, uh, but clearly brought to the country in colonial times and dropped. And that's it. That, that's that's how the academics get over the problem. Occam's razor. They just find find that to be the easiest way out. Absolutely. Now, what made you think that Atlantis Atlantis was in the Caribbean and not in Antarctica? And by the way, whether true or not, I've had people contact me saying they have photographs of pyramids in Antarctica. Have you heard that too? Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I was actually doing an interview uh, with somebody that that had found one on uh, Google Earth um, for. Uh, one of the episodes of Ancient Aliens. I'm actually interviewing him about this. And, I mean, the answer to that is, yeah, there's some very strange anomalies in both Antarctica and in the Arctic. Uh, however, I, I do suspect that the that the um, the most obvious uh, pyramids that are being discovered are what's known as nunataks. And now these are uh, natural um literally pyramids um, that are actually created by the effects of the wind, which obviously carries with it, you know, very heavy uh, snow and ice and over a very prolonged period can carve out, um, you know, patterns which, which which will look as if it's almost like the four sides of a pyramid. Having said that, I mean, obviously I have seen a, a number of um of, of images that do show some very curious things going on in Antarctica but I will state now that I don't believe this has got anything to do with, with, with Atlantis. Um, because if, you know, when we say Atlantis, we've got to think in terms of Plato and what exactly he says. And he says that it exists um, either in or beyond the Atlantic Sea. The Atlantic Sea stretched to the west. He said that from the Atlantic island, you could take other smaller uh, islands as stepping stones and reach the opposite continent. Uh, that, in my opinion, takes us into the area of the, Baha the, the Bahamas and, and the Caribbean because these islands were used as stepping stones to reach the American continent at the time of Columbus. Um, but there's much, much more. I mean, as far as Cuba is concerned, it fits very well the description of the central island of Atlantis as given by Plato in the Critias. Uh, the, the, the huge ridge of, of mountains at the north, the, pl the massive plain on the south, uh, the rough size of that. Um, and, you know, and, and even in the area right in the centre of the plain, um, some friends of mine, I'm going to any detail amongst this is still going to possibly be ongoing, have actually looked in a vast area of swampland there and um, they've seen, within, you know, solar images and uh, aerial photographs, circular uh, rings, which for all intent and purposes match exactly what Plato tells us was around the, 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 the ancient city of, of Atlantis. So, you know, there's even the prospect that it could be m even more closer than, than what I've actually given in the book. But the other important thing 
which we need to, you know, at least mention now, maybe we go into it in greater detail later, is the, the structures that have been found off of various of the uh, Bahaman Islands, uh, most obviously Bimini, uh, in the extreme northern part of the uh, the landmass, where in 1968, I think it was all 69, um, uh, was it J. Manston Valentine, who was a diver, uh, he was also a curator of a museum in uh, Miami, um, found this massive J-shaped structure under the water made of huge stone blocks, uh, which is now known as the Bimini Road. I mean, it's about a quarter of a mile long. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, I've, I've dove onto this site on uh, various occasions. I've been at Bimini when, when another similar structure was actually discovered um, and um, which is known as the Pleasant Point Pier. Um, and, yeah, it's the same thing. And what it is is that they, they are they appear to be made for maritime purposes by, you know, obviously a sea-worthy culture and obviously ocean-going culture who, who you know, have to create things like breakwaters, keys, um, you know, to, 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 so that they can dock their vessels, so that the smaller vessels can come in safely to the shore. And these were certainly not done by the indigenous peoples of the Bahamas, who only reached the area in around, well, officially five to six hundred AD, according to the archaeologists. But it's very obvious that these other structures would have been on old shorelines um, that existed probably around three to four thousand BC. Uh, and there is even deeper structures that go down possibly to a hundred feet, um, you know, in the, in the deeper channels that would have been above water at the very end of the last ice age. And these are obviously much more enigmatic. But the strangest and to me the most compelling of the structures that's been found so far is what's known as Brown's Ruins. Um, Now, this is after the discoverers who are um, Isla and Crystal um, Brown, who were divers, um, had their own diving, um, you know, shop at uh, on Bimini, and they were uh, to the extreme south of the island at one point, and they came across this this massive strewn field of blocks, many of them, you know, cut seemingly cut and dressed, um, and you know, and, and at the northern end of it, I mean, it seemed to be spread out in a tear shape, and at the northern end of it, there was these paved stones, almost as if it was like the the sort of the, the top, you know, like the, the, the top of some kind of pyramid, if you like. Um, and, it, and it almost looked as like something had come along, like somebody with their armour just smashed the whole thing over in a southerly direction to create the pattern which was there today. And, it, you know, it doesn't take, you know, being a rocket scientist to work out that it could have been some kind of tsunami that pushed over a structure to create this particular uh, type of strewn field. Um, and then, of course, you have to say, well, when might that have happened? And, and the shoreline that the, the structure's on, which was um, around three to 4,000 BC, although that means nothing. I mean, clearly it could have been on higher ground before that shoreline was created. I mean, because you know, the shorelines shift, you know, every thousand years. Or, well, you know, I mean, in other words, if, you know, they constantly shift. So 3,000 BC, 4,005 5,600, they're all at a different position. And so this structure could be infinitely older. Indeed, there, there is every reason to suggest that this tsunami could well have been the one that did, devastated the area after this comet impact, you know, the, the younger Dryas comet impact event, which, as I said, occurred around 10,800 BC and lingered in various ways, causing ripples and possibly even further cosmic events for several hundred years afterwards. But if it was a celestial object, Andrew, then I presume that the people who inhabited Atlantis were caught by surprise, or were they? Could they have had technology that enabled them to prepare and and they emigrated to, say, Central and North America and perhaps the Middle East, and that's why we have pyramids built in those locations more or less at the same time? Um, yeah, um, I thought... 
I mean, technology is an interesting word because the first thing that you, you think of if you mention technology computers with the Atlanteans is, you know, the, the, the world of Edgar Casey. And you can't really now detach the vision of Atlantis without talking about Edgar Casey. Now, he's the, you know, American sleeping prophet, you know, one of the, the country's greatest psychics, you know, ever. Um, did so much for the, for you know alternative medicine and you know the, our, our understanding of our holistic lifestyle in many ways comes from him in, in many ways and of course obviously in many of his readings he gave details of past lives of people and he suggested that many of those past lives um, you know had taken place in Atlantis so he gave information about the Atlantean tradition. And the, this included some very, um, you know, quite romantic ideas about what was going on there. Um, you know, the use of crystals and, you know, huge, temp, beautiful temples and things like this. Um, and, you know, his idea of Atlantis was that it was one massive, great island landmass that stretched virtually from, well, virtually encompassed the whole of the, the, the Atlantic Ocean and sank in parts. And that by around 10,500 BC, there was only a smaller landmass left in the area of the Bahamas and the Caribbean. I mean, he talks about um, Bimini. He talks about the area, which is quite clearly Cuba uh, and the, the, the Greater Antilles. And he says this is where the final remnants of Atlantis were. And he also talks about them, that, that they will one day rise again. And he actually says that they will rise again. The first parts will rise in 68 or 69. Yes, 1968, 69, um, not so long away. I mean, he was writing this, I think, in about the 1930s, if I remember rightly. And so that's exactly when Jay Manson Valentine found the Bimini Road. So that was the start. That was the start of, of the new Atlantean research in the area of the Bahamas, which continues on to the day. And, and I mean, the most prolific people um, who will um, who have done the work there are my good friends, uh, Greg and Laura Little. Um, they, off their own back, have been investigating various of the islands um, and, and, you know, doing incredible work of getting to areas of, of obscure areas of Bahamas, particularly around the island of Andros, which is a very, very difficult place to get around and have discovered the most extraordinary structures in the waters off of the coasts uh, there, including something called the Andros Platform, which is an, another structure like the Bimini Road, but even bigger uh, and completely alien to, to, you know, to the environment. It's the only thing there is there's nothing else like it, you know, on that part of the island or anywhere else. You know, it's quite clearly these things are not natural. They're not recorded by geology. That you know, that this is something different. I mean, obviously, a lot of geologists say, "Oh, it's all natural." You know, um, yeah. what, uh, a natural rock that's just frag fractured. Well, that's, that's just that's just not right. Just like the Yonaguni you know, pyramids, I've had people who are geologists who say, "Oh, those are natural uh, formations." Well, I mean, I mean, obviously, Yonaguni is not Atlantis, but I mean, my personal opinion is that the, the main rocks at Yonaguni are natural. And I think that, that most geologists would actually accept that. Uh, I mean, you know, and alternate, those working in the alternative mysteries field. However, what we know is that obviously this area would have been above sea level at the end of the last ice age. Right. So that means that our ancestors could easily of have built structures there, you know, like, um, you know, pillars and things like this, and enhance the natural environment. That seems, to be honest, a much better explanation than to consider that the whole area is, is, is in some way artificial, because I think that, that you'd have a very difficult case trying to prove that in a court of law. If Atlantis is real, and that's just a legend created by Plato, how then did Plato know? Right, that's a good question. Well, I cover this in huge depth in the book because to prove that he was aware of what was going on in the Palmas and the Caribbean, we have to show that there was a bridge 
bringing that information across from the Bahamas and the Caribbean into the Mediterranean world in which he lived by 350 BC. And we can do this through building up not only the story of the of the, the the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians and the evidence for their maritime explorations, not just into the Atlantic, but I've, I've shown how they were the first people to, to, for instance, to navigate the African continent. Um, and, you know, there's evidence of them getting to places like India, and possibly even further afield. But also there's trade. I mean, the big important thing for the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians was finding exotic commodities in far-off lands, bringing them back to the ports of the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. They had ports in the Red Sea as well. And obviously trading that those exotic materials to the major civilizations, most obviously um, Egypt and Babylon and, and, and obviously the, even the Indus Valley. And so what we find is that there are some strange things uncovered in places like Egypt that cannot be explained other than in trade that, uh, you know, that, that's being brought across through transoceanic contact. For instance, nicotine, uh, which, you know, would be used for things like poultices and also, uh, presumably some kind of smoking, um, equipment would, would be used for it. Um, and again, I go into the evidence of that, but also and more, more controversially, cocaine. Cocaine was discovered inside Egyptian mummies in the 1990s right. um, by a um, uh, biochemist working in the field of, of toxicology. And I always get her name muddled up. And it was Svetlana Balabanova. That's it. I've got it. And um, she found this evidence. Um, it became very popular. Um, it was poo-pooed by a lot of skeptics that said, you know, it must simply be contamination of the the mummies, you know, or she simply got on a fax <laughs> roll leaves. or something. Yeah, and but I mean, I can tell you now that um, that that her work is still holds to this day. Others are taking her work on to new levels. Who are working with her have been in touch with me. Um, and she's read the material that I've written and is very, very thankful of, of me that I've been able to give a, a very accurate account because, you know, a lot of people either don't deal with it properly um, and by doing that, they leave themselves open to criticism by sceptics to say, you've got your facts wrong, um, you know, or they ignore it completely because it's either too controversial um, or they're simply sceptical of it. Um, but it's not that the facts are there. I mean, she did, did find evidence of cocaine. Now, let's talk about cocaine for a second. I mean, you know, it's a recreational drug for some today. But if you go to South America, you know, everybody choose cocoa leaves. That's right. And cocoa leaves um, are what I mean, it gives a, a, a mild high. I mean, personally, when I when, when I, I, I was in Peru and, and did it, and it didn't do anything for me whatsoever. But whatever. But um, um, and, and I mean, it's something that's traded long distances, you know, sacks of it. I mean, you know, lorry loads of it has been traded all over the place. And it has done since at least 1500 BC and arguably three, 3,500 BC, at least the trading coca up and down the Andes has taken place. We know, for instance, that it was found in, in, in the area of, of Colombia. Um, and there are various um, cultures that would seem to have benefited from that culture, one of which is a culture known as the Chavin. Um, in the northern part of Peru. And what we know is about the Chavin is that, that they were, um, they, they were on good terms with the Olmecs of Central America, you know, and that they traded between each other. Now, if that's the case, then there's every reason to suspect that coca leaves could have been exported to the Olmec civilization. And if you look at the art of the Olmecs, both as reliefs and statues, you will see the faces of Africans, of uh, people from the Middle East, 
uh, you'll see people from um, the Pacific Islands, uh, from Fiji, from Southeast Asia, places like Vietnam, um, from, you know, from, from Japan and China. I mean, it's quite clear. And, of course, obviously, indigenous peoples of the Americas. Um, it's quite clear that the Olmec was a very cosmopolitan civilization. And I have every reason to believe that the Phoenicians um, and possibly the Carthaginians, though they came just slightly later on, they were probably only up and running by about seven, eight hundred BC, uh, were trading with the Olmecs and bringing this stuff back into the, the Mediterranean. Now, a lot of people will listen to this and say, well, hold on, why, why don't we know about this? And the answer is extremely simple. And that's the fact that the, the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians would never reveal where they got their materials. This was part of their culture, their whole trade secret agreement. And did you know that if a Carthaginian vessel was being followed into, um, you know, into to, to, to uncharted waters, the the captain they would change would, course. Well, no, no, they do worse than that. Well, they would try and change course to start with, but if they didn't lose the vessel, they would scuttle the vessel. And obviously all of the um, the crew would have to find their own way back to civilization. But if the the captain got back to Carthage or wherever it was, he could claim and tell them what, what happened, and he would get full refund on his vessel and his cargo and a pat on the back for not revealing you know, that their their destination. And this is the reason why, almost certainly, the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians went to the Americas and didn't reveal anything to anyone. But of course, what happens with, with in any human environment, people do tell stories. And if you can imagine the Carthaginian Phoenician wrestles at Mediterranean ports and they're unloading, they're talking to the local people, and the local people say, Well, where have you been then? It's oh I can't tell you you know, but then they might be, you know, in a, a tavern or somewhere, you know, that night and, and they're going to reveal something. <laughs> and it's that type of information that ends up being debated by the likes of Plato in their philosophical schools, which remember, what, is, what, what, what was Plato writing? He was writing dialogues. Now, these dialogues are fictional. I think this is important to, to point out. Plato's Atlantis account was a fictional account, one that includes actual facts. And we can tell that because in the same books like the Timaeus, he talks about different aspects of science and about astronomy and about, you know, the, 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 the world existing on its own, the sun and, you know, lots of information which is clearly real. But he's placing them in the mouths of the people taking place in these dialogues. And he chooses key figures who uh, lived, you know, just a few generations before his own time. He even includes members of his own family. And so they're having these dialogues discussing these matters of the day, these matters of science and astronomy and of geography and things like that. So the facts are real. But the setting is fiction. I mean, in some ways, you could almost say that Plato's dialogues are almost the X-Files of their day in, in, in many respects. Um, and I, I see that as a case. And, and I think what happened is that in the same way that the earliest European explorers were told about the cataclysm, it, the legends and folklore and stories of the cataclysm that, that split apart the Palmas and the Caribbean. And I mean, these stories are recorded down by various early Spanish chroniclers and particularly, uh, you know, uh, Jesuits and people like this who, who were actually, at, you know, give the locals enough time and, and um, you know, to actually write down what, what, uh, what their stories and legends and beliefs and things were before they killed them all off. And these stories obviously got back to Europe, to Spain and, and um, you know, Europe in, in general. And I think it was something similar going on in a much earlier era uh, that the Phoenician and the Carthaginians were being told the same stories about this cataclysm 
that had pulled apart the islands that had drowned them and only a few people survived. Uh, there, it was a period of darkness. There was some fairy, uh, f- sorry, fiery serpent that came into the sky um, and fell into the water. Uh, yeah, things like this. It rained fire. All these sorts of stories were in the Bahamas and the Caribbean and also in the coastal areas on the mainland, very close to these island landmasses. And I think that, that they were brought back into the world um, and this, this is what Plato used to create his Atlantis account. But, of course, then the next question is, well, hold on, doesn't he talk about a huge, great city with a, a massive, you know, um, uh, family line of, 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 of kings and things like this? And he, he talks about their, their bull cults and, you know, all the stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah, he does. And most of this is going to be impossible really ever to check out. And I do believe that his Atlantis account did draw on aspects of his own world, probably from Crete, probably from Carthage, probably from various of the other key cities, perhaps even certain of the cities that had been destroyed by earthquakes and tsunamis in his own world. But these were just used as fillers. You know, there is a core, there's core material in here relating to something that happened on the other side of the Atlantic, which has also been used as the basis for his Atlantis account. And as I said, I think that has come from transoceanic contact with the Bahamas and the Caribbean. You mentioned the serpent. Throughout history, we hear of three things, gold, slavery, and the serpent. What do you think the serpent meant to the Atlanteans? Well, um, I, I can't say what they thought about it, but I, I can say what their descendants might have thought about it. Uh, and I think that they were probably the um, the Native American cultures of Central um, Central America, and possibly even some Native, uh, you know, some North American, um, you know, peoples as well, because. Um, they talk about their earliest founders being essentially feathered serpents, uh, serpents in human form that also wear feather coats or have wings. Um, and they are the early wisdom bringers, the, the culture heroes. We're talking about Kukulkan amongst the Maya. Quetzalcoatl. Yeah, Quetzalcoatl, of course. Um, Itzamna is another one um, in, um, in, in Mayan tradition. Uh, and of course, uh, one called um, Votan um, in um, one of the other Central American cultures. I forget which 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 tribe it is now, uh, but they're they're linked with the, the you know the Kichimaya, um, and you know all of them have similar stories. And what they say is that these these wisdom bringers came out of the east, almost exclusively. It's out of the east. They say that they came from an island that has various names. I mean, it's it's known as Atslan, which is obviously a, a name that's very similar to, to Atlantis anyway. Um, another name for it is Talapan, which, may, um, which means something like the old, old red land. Um, and what's so interesting about Cuba is that the plain is almost exclusively made up of this deep red soil, which unquestionably would warrant the like title, Sedona, you know, the old, the old redder, absolutely, yeah, yeah. If you can imagine all of the rock of Sedona that's now become, you know, sandy soil, well, that's exactly what uh, what you've got in Cuba, which is um, oxidized at one point, right? It's oxidized, absolutely. That's that's what causes, you know, red soil, red rock. It's oxidation. It's iron. It's iron, and that's in the soil. And of course, that soil is used today on Cuba. Um, to grow, um, you know, tobacco plants, cigars, uh, you know, sugar. They're one of the the the, the, the biggest sugar producing uh, countries, sugar cane, uh, and obviously much more. Um, but it's these same planes, almost certainly, that, that that Plato's talking about that were used, that were irrigated, and were used for the same purposes by the Atlanteans. I think we also have to be a little bit careful though, because 
what Plato's doing is that he, he may be listening to stories relating to places like Cuba and other of the islands of, of, of the Bahamas and the Caribbean, but he's probably mixing it with stories relating to what's going on there shortly before his own time. So we have to almost see this as like three different periods of time. One, when all these cataclysms took place, let's say 9600 BC. But we also, it's all focused through another age, and that's 350 BC, when Plato writes his account. And of course, we are, what, 2350 years later. So we're seeing it. We have to see it through two different time periods to get an idea of what's going on. And it's for this reason that a lot of people, when they think of Atlantis, they see it with Doric columns and classical temples and things like this, you know, somewhere underwater awaiting discovery. And that's never going to happen. That's really not going to happen. It's certainly not going to happen anywhere in the Western Atlantic because we're seeing it through Plato's eyes. You know, for him, a temple did have, you know, Ionic or Doric columns or whatever. And or the Parthenon. Have, yeah, it's exactly it. And he was seeing it through his eyes. That's that to him. That was a temple. I think what we will discover, and I'm certain that, that this is out there, is something more like Gebekli Tepe in southeast Turkey. Mm. You know, the incredible temple structures and pillars and, and monuments that we find there. Um, or possibly even Gunung Padang in um, in Java, which is a pyramid hill, you know, made out of huge long blocks uh, that have been placed to create this this hill or pyramid-like structure that possibly dates back just to the tail end of, uh, of Atlantis, about 8,000 BC. Some suggest it possibly even goes back to 20,000 BC. That's that's you know something that that's speculation now, but you know. Uh, is is a re- is a possible reality. Um, so you know this is the sort of thing that we're going to find. We're not going to find classical temples in the water in the Atlantic anywhere, or even under the ice in and Antarctica. If you believe that Atlantis is there, but but with the advent of ground penetration radar, don't we have the ability to overfly those areas? I'm not sure if it's if if you can use it with water as the same as with uh, say soil. But don't we have the technology today to be able to determine what's under the ocean there? Um, to a degree. I mean, yes, in shallow waters. But, I mean, most of the oceans themselves are so deep that, you know, you would not be able to penetrate to the bottom So unless you had equipment which unlikely, you know, you know the Soviets or, you know, the, the, the American, you know, U.S. naval, whatever, that, that, these sort of people might have that, that sort of equipment but they're not looking for underwater ruins from our point of view it would be commercial enterprises that, that could do it um and was it yeah the robert ballards of, of this world oh, i've got his name right i've the, uh, the the titanic uh, discoverer guy right. uh, i mean he's very interested in this 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 subject and i mean i'm sure that at some point you know somebody will approach him and say well look how about finding atlantis james cameron um, you mean I thought I had the name right, but he he'll do as well though. It would certainly do. Uh, he's another one that um, that that you know you could approach, and I and I'm sure somebody has actually even said to me that he's he's interested in in you know finding underwater lost cities and Atlantis and stuff like that. But he certainly never approached me. But um, you know, it's the equipment's there. Yes, of course, it's there. But it's it's money and motivation really. Um, and the interest, I think, should be in the area of Cuba. Cuba's a funny place because up until relatively recently, it's been virtually impossible for American citizens to to get in there and do their own right. thing. I mean, you know, you can get special licenses, of course. Um, and that's prevented any kind of exploration. It's also made Cuba almost like this grey communist area that nobody really wants to know anything about you know it's it's, it's almost like yeah you know, america turned their back on it and said no just get on with what you want to get on to you know we, we know you're there we'll just ignore you and this this is something which i think has led 
possibly to a lot of people, even in my field, you know, or the ancient mysteries field, actually ignoring Cuba in favour of more beautiful romantic places which are more accessible. Do you know what I mean? Um, although obviously Antarctica is not very accessible, <laughs> but um, you know, uh, what I'm trying to get at is that I think that people haven't focused enough attention on Cuba because there was a period obviously beforehand where it was um, a place of the high life and, you know, Americans would go there and the casinos and things like that, you know, um, and I think that if that had continued, obviously it would have become a very corrupt place run by the mafia, of course. But it was. Yeah, well, but, but, exactly. but now it's worse. <laughs> well, maybe. But um, but I, I but I think it's opening up, and I, I think that that's important. It's almost like timing is important here. You know, I find it interesting, Andrew, that. We spend so many billions of dollars by NASA trying to go to Mars and elsewhere. Well, we have so many unexplored areas on this very planet or plane, like this, the possibility of finding Atlantis and all the clues, because I think that our history has been rewritten, rewritten and we don't know half of it. And there's this gap of information and knowledge thousands of years ago that we don't know anything about but if what you're telling me is true, that we found all these the, 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 the shipwrecks that go before Columbus and we can find so many artifacts given to the Native Americans in the United States, for example, imagine what we could learn of the civilization of humans that existed thousands of years before the Common Era. Yeah, just one small little word gets in the way, and that's politics. Um, because, you know, I think there's a lot of people in the world that either don't want things to change um, or they're just not interested. And I mean, that is very sad, but very true. I'm afraid. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people enthusiasts, enthusiastic like myself, yourself, your, your, you know, your listeners and obviously many other people around the world, but that's not enough. And, you know, we're a small community. We want to make these discoveries uh, there are certain people within the academic and scholarly world that also would like to make these type of discoveries. But to try and activate that to make it so is a lot more difficult. Um, I mean, quite clearly, governments are not that interested unless it, it favours their own sort of tourism or whatever. Um, military are not that going to be interested because they've got other things to think about. Um, and... If you go to the commercial sector, the first thing they're going to say is, we'd love to do this, you know, this could work, but where's the money going to come yeah. from? Um, and to make this sort of thing work, you, you, you are unquestionably talking about millions of dollars. Um, and so there is the problem. And little people, and I'll class myself in that, find it very difficult to approach the big people to with, with a convincing case to try and get that. I mean, basically, the, the, the best way these things generally work is if somebody gets hold of a book like mine, reads it and think there is something in this and then makes contact and then negotiations and talks can begin on how this could proceed. Uh, I mean, what's so interesting is that my friends Greg and Laura Little, um, they only began, began their investigations of the Bahamas um, after reading my book, um, Gateway to Atlantis, which, which originally came out in the year 2000. And they were so inspired by that and the fact that other discoveries were being made in, off Cuba at that time that they began their own um, research and putting, you know, their own funds into, into this. And that's great. But what we need is for much greater commercial concerns to come on board here uh, because, you know, Two people can only do so much, you know what I mean? I was going to say, um, and, and, and I know some people hate the word commercialize it, but if well, governments it, won't do it or academia won't do it, commercialize it. Well, it, it, you, you, a commercial is not a bad, bad word. Um, you know, it's like the work that I do, for instance. I go to places like Egypt and Turkey, and I was in Java and Peru last year, and I would only, I can only get to these places on tours. 
tours which are organised by my, uh, my, you know, myself, my good friend uh, Hugh Newman, and you know we advertise them. People come on board. They see some great sites, and, and off the tail end of this, we can do some of our own research in these areas, um, and that ends up becoming the material for new books. Uh, we, we we make great discoveries. Videos are made. They go up on YouTube. Whatever. Without this commercial element, we would not be able to do that. We'd just have to sit down at our computers, write our books, and never visit these sites. Right. Yeah, because, you know, we're not made of money. We all have to pay the bills, and at the end of the day, not much money is ever left in the can to go off around the world. So that's that's it. So a commercial thing is a good thing in many respects. Of course, it can be abused, but, you know, it's all about... You know, reading reading the small print before you get involved. Well, we have to take a one and only intermission. How can people buy Atlantis in the Caribbean and the comet that changed the world? Well, try Amazon. I'm sure they've got it. Barnes & Noble, they've definitely got it. Or any good bookshop, either online or out there in the real world somewhere. When we come back, we have a lot more to discuss. This is a very fascinating topic. And I think uh, this area of the Caribbean, it seems to me that this is it. And I think you are onto something. And I want to discuss more when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. I'm here with my special guest, Andrew Collins. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, a USB drive with all our shows, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. <laughs> 